0: On this podcast, we talk about violent crime that's not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. to the Reform Podcast. I'm the host, Kimberly Dudick. This is a true crime policy podcast where we are exploring one unsolved crime over the course of this first season, and we're going to be talking about some important policy issues pretty soon that are involved with this case and others like it. We're going to dig into those policy issues and talk about what you can do in your state to help solve crimes like this. If you want to try to end the violence in our communities and push for policy change and help solve a crime, this is the podcast for you. This season, we're talking about the Lady of the Dunes. We've been exploring this for a few episodes now. And with you listening and searching in whatever capacity you want to, maybe together, we can help uncover some new information that will help identify the Lady of the Dunes and finally give her and her family some peace. Every episode of this season will hopefully bring us one step closer to solving this gruesome mystery. On this episode we're going to start talking about the investigation that occurred and we're also going to talk about who the Lady of the Dunes was thought to have been. We'll talk about the exhumations of her body And pretty soon we're going to be talking about who was suspected of possibly killing the Lady of the Dunes. The investigation that occurred, the turns it took, when her body was exhumed and why, who people thought the Lady of the Dunes may have been, who suspects were that were thought to have possibly killed the Lady of the Dunes, and where we're at today. With the scientific advances that have been taking place since her discovery in 1974, those advances are laying the groundwork for the policy discussions that we're going to be having. I want to provide you with just a little recap of what was talked about so far. If this is your first episode, you should go back to the beginning because we talk about that day on July 26, 1974, when she was first discovered. On July 26, 1974, The Lady of the Dunes body was discovered by Leslie Metcalf. She followed the barking of a dog. It was a friend's dog that she was walking back with her parents from after having a day at the Seascape Dune Shack. She'd walked about 100 yards into the sand dunes on the Cape Cod National Seashore. And she discovered the Lady of the Dunes body, first thinking it might be a deer, but then realizing what she was looking at. Late in the afternoon, park ranger James Hankins arrived at the location of the woman's body with Leslie's mother, according to a Boston Globe article by John Wood from December 22, 1974. And so started the investigation into the Lady of the Dunes mystery. The same article entitled The Baffling Case of the Body on Cape Dunes explains the intense investigation that occurred after she was found. Between July 26 and December twenty-second, as many as 30 detectives combed the sand dunes, but to no avail. The day after she was found, police from several surrounding towns searched for clues in the surrounding dunes, but none were found. The medical examiner and pathologist looked for internal injuries, traces of foreign substances, or identifying marks on the lady of the dunes' body, but again... Nothing was found. The clothing found with her was scrutinized. If you remember, she had a pair of Wrangler jeans that were folded up underneath her head, as well as a blue bandana. So this this clothing, this material was examined by the state police laboratory. It was scrutinized for things like clothing labels or laundry marks, even fingerprints. But nothing was found. Even a bloodhound was brought in. A Park Service bloodhound and his handler spent two days prowling around on the dunes, searching for those clues that only a bloodhound could find. But nothing, again, nothing was found. Some of what appeared as clues that might lead somewhere ended up leading to nowhere. There were the two sets of footprints that were found leading toward her body, but these reportedly disappeared a few yards away in the sand leaving no clue as to what happened or who made them or why they were even there. The John Wood Boston Globe article also reported that in the opposite direction, but still nearby, a large SOS had been traced in the sand. However, this fact isn't reported in all articles or reports about the Lady of the Dunes, and its meaning is difficult to decipher. We don't know whether or how it may be related to the Lady of the Dunes mystery. There was no obvious link between the SOS tracing and the Lady of the Dunes that was found, and no proof existed that it had been made by the woman who had become known as the Lady of the Dunes. So if there was this large SOS nearby, it went nowhere. Another possible clue to the mystery that led nowhere was a set of tire tracks found only 50 feet away from the Lady of the Dunes' body. These tire tracks were leading toward the Dunes, but whether they were connected to her murder or even exactly when those tracks were made is unknown, and any solid link to her murder is uncertain and nothing was ever found. The week following the discovery of her body, two Provincetown police and six state police continued searching for leads, searching for what happened. Maybe she was staying at a local motel or a rooming house. So they canvassed these places, seeing if anybody who had been staying at one of those places had suddenly disappeared. But through this search, nobody was identified who was staying either at a motel or a rooming house who had disappeared. And even though it was 1974, a computer lists did exist. So a computer list of thousands of missing persons existed that the officers compared her description against. Unfortunately, again, no matches came up. A nationwide police bulletin was issued with the basic identifying characteristics of the Lady of the Dune. This was a white female, 25 to 35 years of age five feet six to eight inches tall and weighing 140 to 150 pounds. But the bulletin, again, didn't lead to discovering the Lady of the Dunes identity. And in talking about those years and her height and weight, it's all kind of relative because some reports say she was 20 to possibly 40, 45, 49 years old, and that her height and weight may have been off also. Considering the state of her body and what they could determine, There are different reports on that, but we have a basic understanding. Even though the police were investigating and running down lead after lead, they were getting nowhere. According to Provincetown Police Chief James Mead, now he was the police chief who was in office when her body was discovered. He was quoted as saying, we're still working on it. We're hoping that if we can find out who she is, then maybe that will lead to whoever killed her. But it's hard work and we haven't gotten much to go on. Police tried another tactic. They thought they would look at all vehicles that were licensed to drive on the dunes during the first three weeks of July 1974. Local police reported on the owners of the vehicles and their families. Police kept working that angle, identifying and tracking down the owners of every deserted vehicle, every vehicle, even every deserted bicycle in the area. But all of these paths led to nowhere. After all of these efforts to identify the Lady of the Dunes and hopefully identify her killer, no progress was made. Her body was buried on October 19th, 1974 in an unmarked plot in St. Peter's Cemetery. Even though her identity was unknown, she was provided with a burial service. Funeral director Robert Roth arranged a short non-sectarian service. He is quoted in the Boston Globe article as saying that it may sound sentimental, but I felt there should be some kind of service. After all, she was a human being she might have wanted it. After her body was laid to rest, investigation into her identity continued. As we mentioned in previous episodes, she had extensive dental work that could possibly be used to identify her. We talked before about how individual dentists would have to be contacted in order for the Lady of the Dunes dental charts to be compared to their patients. Well, that's exactly what happened. Her dental charts were mailed by state police to 5,000 Massachusetts dentists, but they didn't stop there. The charts were also mailed to dental societies in 49 states. The charts were mailed to the FBI, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, just in case she was Canadian, and to Interpol, giving her dental records a much larger international audience. Although leads were generated by these efforts, none of the responses matched the Lady of the Dunes' description, none provided what her identity was. Even though her identity was then and still today remains unknown, several possible suspects were identified that could be involved with her death. And there were also several individuals who were thought to be the Lady of the Dunes. Even though she was laid to rest in October of 1974, body has not rested in peace there. A facial reconstruction was done of her face. This was a clay reconstruction and we've posted pictures of this on our website. And according to a Boston Globe article entitled Cape Murder Haunts Police Chief by Teresa Hannafin on July 23, 2014, Dr. Stanley Schwartz, who was head of diagnosis at the Tufts University Dental School and the State Dental Forensic Examiner at the time pieced the murder victim's skull and teeth back together. Dr. Schwartz reconstructed the teeth, the jaw, and her skull. Building off of that, Dr. Clyde Snow created a clay model of the woman's features. Dr. Snow was a renowned forensic anthropologist for the Civil Air Medical Institute of the Federal Aviation Administration. Photographs of their work was taken. As I said, it's posted on our website. The model and artist renderings of the sculpture were circulated worldwide in an attempt to identify the Lady of the Dunes. Police Chief James Mead had articles on the case published in dental journals as well as police and detective magazines. Mead's tried to spread the word as much as possible about the case. He appeared in national magazines and on, network television to talk about it. If Leeds came up, he would travel extensively to follow them. Hannafin's Boston Globe article explained that Meads received thousands of letters and phone calls about the case and the Lady of the Dunes. About 50 of these contacts were able to supply dental records too. But unfortunately, none of those matched the Lady of the Dunes dental records. Remember, she had some pretty distinct dental work done. When Meats was interviewed for the 2014 Boston Globe article, there was noticeable devotion to the case. On one side of his office, a stack of paper on the case stood two to three feet tall. And in another corner, the Lady of the Dunes skull sat in a cardboard box waiting for her identity to be discovered. Showing evidence of the abuse she suffered, a chunk of her skull about the size of a hand was missing. There was also a jagged eight-inch crack along the top. In 1980, the Lady of the Dunes body was exhumed to collect blood samples. This is the first time it was exhumed. It was exhumed a total of three times. When she was first buried, her skull was buried with her. Her body was also exhumed then so that a rendering of her face could be molded from the skull. So when she was reburied, the skull was not buried with her. That's the skull that was sitting in the box at Chief Meade's office in 2014 when he was interviewed for that article. Photos of the resulting bust were sent around the country in hopes that someone would recognize it, but no identification resulted. Now, the second time she was exhumed, 20 years later in 2000, This time her body was exhumed to retrieve DNA samples from a bone fragment. This was taken to explore a potential lead, see if she was related to a family member who had come forward. The DNA samples were used to compare her to another woman who had been identified as possibly being the mother of the Lady of the Dunes. Her body was exhumed in an attempt to match the Lady of the Dunes DNA against that of Rory Jean Kessinger. People believe that Kessinger strongly resembled the remains of the Lady of the Dunes. So a DNA test using DNA of Kessinger's mother and the Lady of the Dunes was conducted. Now you may not have heard of Rory Kessinger before and we haven't talked about her on this podcast. Rory Jean Kessinger was an inmate who had escaped from a Plymouth, Massachusetts jail just months before the Lady of the Dunes body was discovered. Rory had been arrested for the attempted murder of two police officers. She was a member of an organized crime group and was initially arrested with these members. Rory was a brown haired and blue eyed beauty. She was a 24-year-old bank robber, drug dealer, and gun runner, according to the Lost Girls blog in a 2019 entry entitled The Girl Who Vanished, Rory Jean Kessinger. She wasn't a stranger to living on the edge. She had a lengthy history of being involved in criminal activity and dealing and using drugs. Rory had been booked in the Plymouth County Correctional Facility, but weeks after being brought in, She escaped from custody on May 27, 1973. And she didn't do this alone. She had the assistance from a guard there. So even though she'd been arrested for the attempted murder of two police officers in Pembroke, Massachusetts, this obviously was not enough to stop another officer, a guard from somehow falling under her spell. According to the Lost Girls blog, The guard supposedly snuck a hacksaw into the jail for Rory to use to saw the bars off her cell window, it sounds like. She then tied bedsheets together to escape into the late spring night. And she did. She seemed to disappear into that night, never to be heard from again. But this wouldn't be the first time that Rory disappeared. She had run away from home when she was 15 years old, and her family never heard from her again but her family wondered if she might actually be the Lady of the Dunes. She is said to have used numerous aliases, including Jennifer Marie Lynn, Linda Lynn Koch, Penny Susan Johnson, and maybe Lady of the Dunes would turn out to be an alias that she unintentionally was known by. Near the end of the 1980s, police began to suspect that there might be that link between Rory and the Lady of the Dunes. The timing fit, her height, which was about five foot three, and her weight of 188 pounds, was close enough to fit. So DNA testing began. One source I found stated that the initial DNA comparisons were inconclusive. However, in 2002, a test was performed, and the results were conclusive this time. Unfortunately, it was not a match. And also unfortunately, it is doubtful that Rory Kessinger is still alive. It was rumored that she was most likely killed by members of the organized crime group she belonged to. They're thought to have killed her to protect themselves. In fact, one of the members that was arrested with her in 1973 when she was initially arrested is claimed to have stated that that is exactly what happened. That she was murdered and that the group members would have disposed of her body locally not have left it on the sand dunes as the Lady of the Dunes body had been. So time continued to march on without the identity of the Lady of the Dunes being confirmed. In May of 2010, nearly 26 years after her body was discovered, new facial recognition software using state-of-the-art technology and computer analysis allowed forensic experts from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Smithsonian Institution to create a composite of what the Lady of the Dunes looked like. And we've placed this picture on our website. This is a colored picture. It was really the first time that a colored picture done with this detailed kind of technology was done. You can see the progression with the pictures that they become more detailed, but that they definitely continue to share commonalities and how they depict the Lady of the Dunes face. In May of 2013, Nearly 39 years after her body was found, it was exhumed again for the third time. This third time it was exhumed to obtain even more DNA, but again, nothing produced a positive identity for the Lady of the Dunes. But there were leads that were followed up on during the intervening years between the exhumations. In 1987, a woman from Maryland called Police Chief Meads to report She had not heard from her sister since her sister moved to Boston in 1974. And 1974 was the year of the murder. Her sister had auburn hair, the same color as the Lady of the Dunes. And we've never really talked about her eye color because the state of her body decomposition did not leave enough evidence to see what color her eyes might've been. We don't know if her eyes were the same color. But the woman thought that the reconstruction of the Lady of the Dunes looked like her sister. However, it turned out not to be a match for the Lady of the Dunes. Now there was also a report from a Canadian woman that claimed she had seen her father strangle someone when she was a child and she thought it might have been the Lady of the Dunes. Supposedly, this woman said she had seen her father strangle a woman in Massachusetts around 1972. Now, she she was a child at the time. so. Even though she thought it was 1972, it could have been 1974. That's reasonable. But even though they investigated, police were not able to locate this Canadian woman. Her address had changed and they couldn't find it. So that's actually a lead that may have some legs to it and that could be followed up on. Two additional leads for different women that the Lady of the Dunes could have been also were followed up on. One of these, was for Frances Ewalt of Forsyth, Montana. According to the charlieproject.org, she was last seen at the Agate Bar on Main Street in Forsyth at 11 o'clock p.m. on August 19, 1973. From there, she left by herself, leaving a female friend there. She said that she was going to see her brother, who was a nightclub musician, but she never visited her brother and she'd never been heard from again. However, it was ruled out that she was the Lady of the Dunes. She was not. And we're actually recording this podcast in Montana. I'm well aware of Forsyth and haven't been to the Agate Bar there yet if it still exists, but maybe I'll have to stop in there and tell you guys about it. Another possible lead was that the Lady of the Dunes could be Vicki Lamberton of Massachusetts. Lamberton was studying for a master's degree in psychology at Assumption College. although she was married, she was separated from her husband and some thought she might have been involved with a professor of hers. A friend of hers reported that she was going to go on a ski trip with this professor one weekend, but according to the charlieproject.org, after that weekend, she was never heard from again. However, she was ruled out as being the Lady of the Dunes. When we talk about people being ruled out, it could be for reasons such as the timeline doesn't match up, or their dental records didn't match, or the DNA doesn't match. So there are, there are different reasons. There could be other reasons why people have been ruled out. In Vicki Lamberton's case, it was because of the dental records. She was supposed to have great teeth, but we know the Lady of the Dunes had extensive dental work done. So at this point, I just want to make a personal observation here. Although these women were suspected of being the Lady of the Dunes and they were not, there are still women who lived, who had lives and who disappeared, who are likely to have met with a violent end, which is totally unacceptable. No person has the right to take the life of another. And although we're talking about the Lady of the Dunes case, it is an all too common refrain that we hear about women disappearing or dying all too often at the hands of those who claim to love them or that they've been involved with. Working to address this underlying violence against women in our society is a problem that we truly need to take on. And we aren't taking that all on right now with this season, but the policies that we're going to start talking about in coming episodes are a step towards ensuring justice for those who have been harmed and at least allowing their identity to be known. On the next episode we're going to explore the people who have been suspected of being the lady of the dunes killer that's our next step these people include people like mobster whitey bulger serial killers haddon clark and tony costa and we'll even talk about how the movie jaws one of my all-time favorites may somehow be involved in this case for those who want to be involved and try and help solve this case Let's try to follow up on one of the leads we talked about today that has not been totally ruled out. This is the report from a Canadian woman who claimed she had seen her father strangle someone in Massachusetts around 1972. She thought it might have been the Lady of the Dunes. It would be wonderful if someone could locate this woman's identity, find the address she lived in, and maybe somehow we could follow up with her. What's her name? What's her address? Where in Canada did she move to? Where might she be now? Let us know if you have any relevant information at thereformpod at gmail.com. We've already started hearing from people and I'm excited to bring you those updates in coming episodes. We look forward to the information you provide and we'll forward any information you provide to us to the proper authorities. We also urge you to contact the Provincetown Police Department at 508-487-1212. Stay tuned for next week when we continue digging into the Lady of the Dunes mystery and start looking at who might have actually killed her. We want to fully thank and recognize our sources and their work. A full list and links is available on our website at thereformpodcast.com. We've also mentioned some of them in this episode. Thank you for listening to The Reform Podcast. Before we go, if you want to support the work we're doing We want to reach as many people as possible. So the ask that we have this week is please go and subscribe to our podcast. We have had hundreds of downloads, but we need people to subscribe to the podcast too, on whatever platform you use. Your voice matters, give us a review, and it really helps us reach more people. You can also join us on Patreon where you get access to exclusive content. The Reform Podcast is written, researched, recorded, and produced by me, Kimberly Dudick. You can follow the Reform Podcast and stay up to date on Instagram at The Reform Podcast, on Facebook at The Reform Podcast, and on Twitter at The Reform Pod. Our theme song is Be Mine by the Missoula-Montana musician Tom Catmull. We're making this show on and around the traditional lands of the Salish Ponderé. Kootenai, Shoshone, Blackfeet, Chinook, and Multnomah peoples, as well as many other Native tribes. With deep respect, we acknowledge the Indigenous people of the West and throughout the United States. Wherever you are, thank you for listening. Until next time, keep searching for justice.
1: I didn't mean nobody, a darling when the door locked in my little finger. Walked hand in hand. And that was just the sound of a word or a sticker, my thumb against some wood or something. I, I got nothing planned. And when the room is quiet, it's either one of two religions, joyful noise, or a wide open space. The letter pulls you short from a crowded room with your pocketbook in your heart and your mind out of place. Be mine, be mine. taverns while mining your own but when your ears fill twice a chance encounters a charming third and you'll someday find it stained to your bones it is particular about company and it sparks the flame of jealousy in those you hold close and it has no fear of poverty the bottle or solace you see you are what it needs most i right.